My name is Arunima J and you're listening to A Meditation on Oppression. This is a space for you and I to have honest conversations about how domination is a design through which we relate to one another. How is oppression designed to live in socio-economic, ecological, and cultural landscapes? And what possibilities do we have to do things differently? Tenakoto, tenakoto, tenakoto kato. Hello, hello. For our first episode, let's talk about anarchism. Does anarchism just mean chaos and lawlessness? What does it mean to practice anarchism? And who's talking about it? Where can you learn more? Y'all, anarchism has become a hard word lately. What with the U.S.'s last president pompously declaring Portland an anarchist jurisdiction in response to protesters who mobilized against white supremacist police brutality and George Floyd's murder in the summer of 2020. So I want us to dive into three anarchist organizing principles, and let's discuss their value. As we talk, I'm going to pull some material from David Graeber's text called Fragments of an Anarchist Anthropology, written in 2004 and published by Prickly Paradigm Press. The first principle of anarchist organizing that I want to talk about is anti-authoritarianism. Now, a lot of people think that the etymological root of the word anarchy is where the definition of it meaning lawlessness and chaos comes from. But the true etymological root of anarchy comes from the Greek word anarchos, which means without ruler. Anarchists want to create and envision forms of governance that are stateless, egalitarian, and cooperative in nature because they don't like the idea of having somebody rule over them or having a ruling class. So it makes sense that in the present contemporary context, Anarchists are opposed to the nation-state as a system. Among other reasons, because states use their power to abuse people. Think about specific systems that the state has, such as the police, prisons, armies, and borders. This also distinguishes anarchist thought and anarchist practices from some other groups that we would bundle into the left. And I'm thinking specifically of forms of communism and and communist groups that believe that believe that we're going to need a a vanguard and we're going to need a class of people to overthrow the bourgeois and this class of people which would be the workers class 
and therefore the revolutionary class, this class of people needs to take over state apparatus and to turn it into an apparatus that works for everybody. Anarchists would argue and would practice forms of governance and forms of collective gathering that don't legitimize the state apparatus. Which brings me to my second anarchist organizing principle, which is autonomy and collective self-determination. So what does this mean? Well, since anarchists argued that the state doesn't work in our interest, it works for the group of people that has the power and has hoarded the, enough money to call the shots, they believe that what we need is autonomy. And lately, a lot of content creators and organizers, both in online and fleshly or offline spaces, have been talking about what it looks like to practice the ethic of autonomy. Now, if you think that this is abstract, that which is something that I hear people say, and I think needs to be unpacked, right? This idea that anarchism is, is so abstract that it, it, you know, we've never seen it put into practice, or we don't know how it would be put into practice. Well, Two on this. One of the things that I find really interesting about the, the, you know, the advancement of autonomy as the lens through which we relate to each other is the, for example, the continuous practicing of consent. So in romantic and platonic relationships, not only checking in with people and affirming and asking for consent, but also creating spaces and relationships where people feel free and safe to say no to you. Therefore, exercising their autonomy and continuing to cultivate a healthy and abundant and bountiful and joyful relationship with you. Another example that I think not enough people talk about in the left or otherwise is parenting and raising children with a strong sense of autonomy. Certainly in the context that I grew up in, children were thought to <laughs> be everything except autonomous. And I think the links between children, like the epidemic of child sexual abuse and the ways in which children's bodies and psyches are violated suddenly is connected to adults, quote-unquote, exercising, you know, forms of abusive power over children who are not considered old enough to be autonomous. So something to think about. And I also want to point out that autonomy is not 
simply uh, about individualism. Now, if you've read anarchist theorists or anarchist trade union organizers or European anarchists, suddenly there's a line of thinking in mainstream society that anarchism comes from Europe. And while it's true that anarchism as a movement and as a political lens really explicitly evolved in the English-speaking world in the 1800s, what I find really valuable about Kraber's text is that he points out how societies have continued to be anarchists throughout time. And specifically, he gives the example of uh, different societies in Northwest Madagascar, one in particular that I loved. They're called the Simiheti people. And the Simiheti people are nowadays considered, you know, a, a collective, a people or an ethnic group, but their collective identity actually emerged as what he calls a political project because they were living in the times of the monarchy and these people became uh, a cohesive group because they refused the authority of the Sakalava monarchy. And Kreber calls the Simiheti the anarchists of Northwest Madagascar. And he says that even to this day, the Simiheti have maintain a reputation as masters of evasion, which means that when the colonial French government's administrators would, uh, would, you know, want to enact certain policies or, or sort of exercise governance over the Semiheti, they would encounter elders who were apparently cooperative and when they would send, the French would send men to do, you know, to get this work done, they would find that the in like the Simiheti had abandoned their entire village, and and every single inhabitant had moved in with some relative in another part of the country. And I think this is a fantastic example of collective self determination. So thinking about autonomy not only through the lens of individualism and in one body, but really thinking about how each body within a collective has the agency and the cultural power to exercise collective self-determination to cooperate to cooperate and to reach a decision and to basically say f you to forms of governance that don't work for them as a collective and are being imposed from them uh, imposed on them from uh, somebody who claims to be the authority. Okay, the third anarchist principle that I want to talk about is mutual aid. Dun dun dun. I think mutual aid has really taken off, especially in our corner of the United States, which is the Pacific Northwest, but certainly in other cities, other towns, even villages in the United States and worldwide. But since I'm located currently in the United States, I'm going to speak to forms of mutual aid I've seen 
in in this context in these lands mutual aid is a pretty self-explanatory term hopefully essentially it means it practices this again this way of relating to one another that doesn't rely on the state to fulfill basic needs because especially in a hypercapitalist context context in the United States we've known and we've noticed time and again that the state is uninterested in fulfilling people's basic needs the state is uninterested in providing basic healthcare to everybody the state is uninterested in caring for poor people for unhoused people and this is where anarchists step in and create the hierarchized so what what we call vertical organizations where there can be rotating leadership or there can be no explicit leader and everybody takes on some of the work the way that this has played out in portland is really quite amazing one of my favorite initiatives that is only growing stronger each and every day is called pdx free fridge pdx free fridge came into existence when residents of portland decided that nobody should be going hungry simply because they are not deemed productive enough by the capitalist economy and therefore don't make enough money to have food to eat and to survive so they decided to ask for donations for fridges and started putting up fridges on street corners on people's blocks and what started as a fairly modest kind of offering or you know their stock at first was fairly modest but because people who live here like neighbors you know decided that they wanted to invest in this their their mutual aid project has been growing so rapidly and now they have local restaurants and eateries donating their food like making food to be stocked in these fridges so you should definitely check out pdx free fridge on instagram and support them if if you can and, and if you'd like now that we've talked about three principles of anarchist organizing first anti-authoritarianism second autonomy based on collective self-determination and third mutual aid i want to briefly touch on graeber's critique of the connections between anarchists thought and anthropologists he has quite a few critiques the first one he makes is that anthropologists are, un- are in a unique position to think through anarchism because they're sitting on such a vast body of cross-cultural ethnographic work that allows us to see how people have created and implemented and continued egalitarian societies that don't rely on hierarchies or domination to get things done 
The second critique Graeber has is that anthropologists are perhaps non-ideological or to a fault where they're actually complicit within the status quo. He says this by suggesting that most anthropologists uh, do not suggest viable alternatives than capitalism. Now, I want to reinstate that this book was written in 2004, and so I want to respond to Graeber's critique by citing a book by an anthropologist, ethnographer, that really impacted the way that I think through what like ways of relating with one another on a social, ecological, and economic, cultural, colonial, neo-colonial sense. And the book I'm talking about that you may have heard of is Juno Perenius's Decolonizing Extinction, written in 2018, published by Duke University Press. In this book, I see Perenius utilizing all three of the lenses or the principles or the practices that I've talked about. She critiques colonial authorities as they show up both actively during the age of British and European colonialism in Indonesia. She also talks about how those power structures show up today in NGO work in Sarawak, which is where she is at the time. She talks about autonomy specifically through a spiritual and religious lens. And she also talks about mutual aid, particularly through care work and what that looks like when it's both a form of livelihood, but also a a sense of motivated by a responsibility and a sense of kinship that that is felt by her interlocutors towards the orangutans that they care for. Now, what I'm saying here is that I think, and or I would argue that anthropologists, especially black, brown, and indig- indigenous anthropologists, have indeed been making salient contributions about viable alternatives and different ways of relating to one another that are less abusive, less violent, more life-affirming, more caring, more ethical than state capitalism or the heteropatriarchy or other forms of oppression that, that we encounter in our lives. As I close out this episode, there are two main questions that I have in order to help us think critically about anarchist principles and practices. The first one is, are anarchists and the state working inherently at different scales? And if yes, does that impact the viability of anarchist practices? What do I mean by this? Briefly, the state institutions that anarchists critique, such as the police, prisons, and borders, 
and border control are very well organized because the power and the hierarchy is centralized. Anarchists, on the other hand, work much more on a communitarian level and there, there is no one cohesive national anarchist body precisely because na- anarchists oppose the nation state as, a, as an organizing model. So does this inherent difference of, of, of the scale at which they're operating impact how effective and how viably anarchist practices can be scaled? The second question I have is a question that may be applicable to other forms of radical organizing and radical world building and world making. Certainly, you know, practices such as feminism, which not to say that anarchism and feminism don't go hand in hand. In fact, for many they do. But the question I have is, how do you, how do you con, or how do you turn or convert or convince people who have decidedly different motivations that drive their actions? So if the, you know, if one motivation for anarchists is that people should be cared for and we can take care of each other, then how do you, as, as an anarchist, talk to somebody or get more people on your side because they may believe in taking care of their neighbors, but they may also believe in the superiority of the white race. And so how do we turn existing forms of oppression and domination that live within people if we acknowledge their complexity and say that they also exercise principles and have practices that we can benefit from and that we need in order to make a more life-affirming, more joyful, less oppressive world. That's all from me today. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. You can also check out my social media in the bio of this podcast. And if you want to learn more about anarchism, I recommend abolish underscore time on Instagram, who is a black trans disabled writer, and the anarchistlibrary.org the anarchistlibrary.org is a great resource with writings from all over the world. I hope you all take care and until next time. In today's episode, let's tackle the basics of caste oppression in South Asian cultures and diasporas worldwide. To do this, I'm going to discuss one part of the book titled Oppressor's Body and Mind by poet, writer, and publisher Yogesh Maitreya. I love this book. It's really well written. And Maitreya runs Panther Paw Publishing. So you can click the link in my description to go and support his work directly. I think it's crucial that we read Dalit scholars 
I also attempt to be mindful of my caste privilege position in this conversation and to decenter any discomfort that may come up about my unearned privilege by focusing on the author's work and social critiques of caste.